What was it like to cover President Donald Trump? I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Chapman Center for Citizen Leadership. Episode 5, COVID Calls, goes back to the early days of 2020 when America confronted a great unknown, a plague that eventually would take more than a million American lives. The country did not set aside partisan differences in the face of a scary new enemy. Some stayed at home. Others scoffed at the threat. Trump delivered a vaccine in record time, relived the lockdowns, the mass controversies, the waves of positive COVID tests that walloped the West Wing. California locked up, and Trump still held rallies. It was, after all, an election year. Episode 5, COVID Calls. There's a saying in the news business. Our job is to report the news, not to make news. Like almost every other journalistic norm, that attitude pretty much went out the window during Donald Trump's time in the White House. The White House press corps became a big part of the story. There was no avoiding it, especially after COVID came to town. The coronavirus is, after all, an infectious disease. When White House staffers contracted the virus, it was a story, and their names were reported. But when most reporters got COVID, they could choose to disclose their status or keep it private. And there was a bonus. If we got COVID, at least we could write about it. It would be like a story the stork delivered. In May 2020, Vice President Mike Pence held an event where he delivered personal protective gear to a rehab facility in Alexandria, Virginia. Since I live in Alexandria, someone from the WHCA asked me to pull the event. The event did not make much news until the next day, when Pence spokeswoman Katie Miller, the wife of Trump whisperer Stephen Miller, tested positive for COVID. Miller had been at the Woodbine Rehabilitation and Healthcare Center. A Reuters photographer had snapped a shot of Miller, not wearing a mask, as she talked to reporters who were masked, including me. She had tested negative that morning. But then she tested positive the next day. The photo of Miller in the press scrum went viral. With my mop of curly red hair, I was easy to identify. My masked face and hair flashed all over cable news and in newspapers that reported on Miller's positive test and the fact that the Pence team did not mask up for the event. The instant Miller tested positive, I was swamped with queries from friends and colleagues who had seen the photo. I don't believe Katie Miller endangered my health. It was an outdoor event. Two task force members who attended the event also skipped masking, as did Woodbine executives. If you went by the task force guidance about close contact, my brief exchange with Miller did not qualify as a spreadable moment. She was six feet away from me, give or take a foot, but we didn't talk for 15 minutes, probably not even five. I had masked up not because I'm virtuous, but because the White House Correspondents Association directed members to wear masks. Safety was a main motivator, but also the Twitter police loved nothing better than to monitor whether reporters were masked up and to shame the maskless on social media, even though many of us never advocated hardcore masking. 
We spent our days in the harsh spotlight of opprobrium, so we covered our mouths and noses. After Miller's positive status became known, I went to the White House for an Abbott PCR test and was told the White House would contact me only if I tested positive. White House staff were notified whether they were positive or negative. That courtesy was not extended to the press, who had to assume they were negative if they didn't hear otherwise. Hey, what could go wrong? That was hardly the last COVID surge in the Trump White House. Trump's resistance to mask wearing and social distancing set an example that discouraged staff from following guidance issued by his own White House Coronavirus Task Force. MSNBC's Nicole Wallace called COVID-19 Trump's Katrina, a reference to the 2005 hurricane that battered the Gulf Coast and then-President George W. Bush's approval ratings. As the Federal Emergency Management Agency was slow to provide aid to desperate families, Bush told FEMA head Michael Brown, Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. Not the right thing to say in that moment. Likewise, during a July 2020 interview with Bob Woodward, who was working on his book Rage, Trump offered how he would grade his performance on COVID. He gave himself an A-, or an A-plus if he could deliver a vaccine and therapeutics on his accelerated schedule, which Trump did. Other than the uh, public relations, which is impossible because it's a fake media, fake, they're fake. I know you just, well, I think yeah, you I do, do agree, but I, 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 yeah. Other than the fact that I have been unable to So what's, what's the grade, sir? Or treating us fairly, I give ourselves an A. But the grade is incomplete, and I'll tell you why. If we come up with the uh, vaccines and, uh, and uh, therapeutics, Like Bush, who couldn't control the weather, no president can be blamed for the destruction wrought by Mother Nature. But presidents can be judged on how they handle disasters. Trump's experience as a businessman and developer who steamrolled ahead with projects despite bureaucratic hurdles was an asset. Ditto his respect for supply chains. When Trump said he wanted a vaccine within a year, experts scoffed. But it happened. Also, Trump put together the White House Coronavirus Task Force. While I think Trump did a good job getting the country's attention and pushing for vaccines and treatments, the country was not impressed with his performance. Many came to think that the president made COVID too much about him. Trump didn't help himself when, during an April briefing, he introduced a task force associate who said bleach could kill the virus on surfaces. Then Trump suggested that using ultraviolet light on or inside the body could kill COVID, too. He was spitballing on the wrong issue, which handed a nugget to his detractors. So, supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, which you can do either through the skin or... Uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. When rival Joe Biden claimed Trump told America, quote, maybe if you drink bleach, maybe you may be okay, close quote, PolitiFact rated Biden's statement mostly false. Sadly, wrongly, the drink bleach narrative was hard to erase. Confession time. In the beginning, I was an ardent COVID skeptic. I recognized that the virus was serious and random, but I did not appreciate how serious and random it was. 
Not only was I adamant about going about my work as usual, this is before vaccines and White House Correspondents Association social distancing policies. I also planned to fly to Las Vegas to cover an upcoming Trump address before the Republican Jewish Council on March 14. This is where I should mention that Sheldon Adelson, whose family owned my paper, served on the board of the RJC. The Review Journal always mentioned the connection and relevant stories. So, I wanted to be there. That was my attitude right up until my temperature spiked to 101 degrees on March 11, the night before I was scheduled to fly to Las Vegas. In short order, and in a turnabout from what my sources had been telling me, Trump's RJC speech was canceled out of an abundance of caution. Kellyanne Conway wrote in her book, Here's the Deal, a memoir, March 11 was the day things got real. I recently had covered the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, one of the first Beltway super-spreading venues. I may have been exposed to COVID, but I had been asymptomatic. As soon as I started to feel ill that March night, I contacted my doctor who set me up to get tested and treated the next morning. When I got there, I was told I did not qualify for a test because while I had been exposed, arguably, and had symptoms, the tests were reserved for people who could check those two boxes and had been out of the country. I went home with COVID drugs and an inhaler. Did I have COVID or just the flu? Later, I took an antibody test, and it was negative. So I'm probably part of the vast number of Americans who think they may have had COVID, but really didn't. Since then, I never tested positive, and when I covered the White House, I was tested regularly. The most infamous super spreader event at the White House occurred on September 26, when Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court. I had a bad feeling about the Rose Garden announcement and chose to cover it remotely. The newly nominated justice already had had the virus and recovered by then, so she was fine. But many who attended the celebration that extended from the Rose Garden to inside the White House came down with the virus. The list of newly infected included Kellyanne Conway, Melania Trump, Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and two U.S. Senators. A press aide and a couple of reporters who'd been jammed into a small outdoor space tested positive shortly after the event as well. On October 1, Trump tested positive for COVID, surprising no one. He was helicoptered to Walter Reed Military Medical Center in Maryland, where he was treated with a cocktail of monoclonal antibodies. Trump spent three days at Walter Reed. I was on the South Lawn when he returned on Marine One and walked up the two-story steps leading to the South Portico balcony. It was an impressive show from a president who wanted to project personal strength and didn't want Americans to fear the virus. Trump hated to shut down what he called the greatest economy in the history of the world. Nonetheless, he did listen to the experts who pushed for, then expanded, 15 days to slow the spread. While Trump was on board with the stay-at-home orders, he was right to let elected officials, who are closest to their constituents, decide how to address COVID. Policy-wise, it was the right stand. Politically, Trump was able to have it both ways, supporting shutdowns while signaling to his constituents that deep down he opposed them. In late March 2020, I turned to Stanford University epidemiologist Jay Bhattacharya, 
who was concerned about the long-term health consequences of lockdowns and school closures. Jay later became one of the three authors of the Great Barrington Declaration that warned lockdown policies, quote, are producing devastating effects on short-term and long-term public health, close quote, and that would lead to greater excess mortality and pose a heavier burden on the working class. Jay became an informal background advisor to Trump. I was on board with Bhattacharya's view that the government's focus should be on protecting the vulnerable while allowing those at no risk of death or hospitalization to return to normal. That said, Trump's refusal to take reasonable precautions was wrong. He was the President of the United States. If, God forbid, the then 74-year-old had died, or had long COVID and could not fulfill his duties, the Vice President might have had to take the lead. Few insiders thought Trump would relinquish power, even if he were severely impaired. If Trump and Pence, who was in his early 60s, had gotten seriously ill at the time, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, age 80, was next in line. I remember watching an indoor rally in Tulsa in June and thinking people would have to be nuts to attend such an event, especially indoors. I was pleased to see that the Trump base got it. While Trump boasted he had given away a million tickets, he didn't even fill the 19,000-seat box center. Great, I thought. The diehard base was not dying to see Trump. Little did I know that before the year was over, I'd be one of those people covering Trump inside a crowded indoor venue. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back in a flash with more fake news. Hey, this is Glenn Lowry, the host of The Glenn Show. Every week, I talk to scholars and authors on a wide range of topics with a special focus on race and inequality in the United States. Every other episode is with my friend, John McWhorter, the linguist and author of the book, Woke Racism. I invite you to check us out at glennlowry.substack.com. I was 65 when coronavirus hit America. Because of my age, I could have covered the White House remotely. But like cops, nurses, and people who work at grocery stores, reporters are essential workers. It's our responsibility to get the story. The RJ wrote a letter I could show to authorities if I was stopped for violating any closure orders. Of course I wanted to be there at the White House as much as possible and get as close to the story as I could. This was history. Downside? Over time, the Trump White House came to resemble a giant COVID Petri dish with frequent staff outbreaks. The White House Correspondents Association put more thought into protecting its members. The WHCA issued social distancing policies in the briefing room, placing a rotating roster of reporters in 14 of the 49 seats in the James S. Brady briefing room. The rules also barred reporters from standing in the aisles. When I had a seat on rotation, I showed up. One plus, if you got one of those 14 seats, your chances of being called on rose appreciably, and Trump himself often took questions. This was good for Nevada and me. The Small Business Administration had issued a regulation to deny forgivable federal loans under the Paycheck Protection Program to small casinos. That wasn't supposed to happen. 
The administration had said it would not exclude legal businesses because, say, they served alcohol or sold cigarettes. The idea was to make workers and legal small businesses whole for losses experienced through no fault of their own, but because of COVID shutdowns. Letting partisans decide which legal businesses qualified would have sabotaged an idea meant to keep the economy afloat. I was in a position to ask the president and members of his administration repeatedly why they shortchanged small casinos. The White House responded by moving the ball and covering small casinos if they didn't make too much money from gambling. That wasn't enough. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. The Nevada delegation is unhappy because smaller casinos uh, and, and businesses that make uh, profit from, in Nevada. from gaming in Nevada found out they're not eligible for the CARES Act PPP money. And they thought gaming would not be treated any differently than any other business with this. Was this Well, I could look at that. I could look. It's a great state, and I will take a look at that strongly. Eventually, small casinos got treated like other businesses. Bingo! In her book, Silent Invasion, Task Force Coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks credited masking indoors and social distancing as reasons she never tested positive for COVID, despite her task force work and fact-finding road trips across the country. If you follow the guidance, which not every American was in a position to do, chances were that you'd be okay. So I showed up at the White House when I had a seat. What about Dr. Anthony Fauci? He's a dedicated public servant who helped America get through the AIDS crisis and COVID-19. Did he like the public spotlight a little too much? Sure, but he led the way when the coronavirus was shrouded in mystery, and his participation gave Trump credibility when the president needed it. It was always going to be a thankless job. As Burks wrote, she warned Fauci, CDC Director Robert Redfield, and FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn. We'll be lucky if we survive this. We're going to be hated. We will be the ones who will be blamed on both sides. We'll be hated by the right for not agreeing with the president and hated by the left for staying and trying to support as comprehensive a response as possible under an administration they loathe. The COVID wars spilled into Twitter and frontline doctors were not immune from Trump's quick-draw judgments. In December 2020, Reno ICU doctor Jacob Keeperman tweeted a photo of the renowned Regional Medical Center's parking garage, which had been converted into a COVID medical unit. Five people had died at the facility in the last 32 hours, the doctor noted. Nevada's Democratic Governor Steve Sisolak retweeted the post and praised first responders. A fringe Vegas website then tweeted that the Reno post was a scam and the photo was of a fake hospital. Apparently, without fact-checking, Trump retweeted the group's bogus assertions, and he compared the fake hospital to the fake election results that showed him losing Nevada in 2016. I got the good doctor on the phone. Keeperman was shocked to be on the receiving end of the wrath of the leader of the free world. His goal had been to thank workers who had put themselves out to treat COVID patients, and this was his reward. The White House had no comment. COVID widened the divide during a crisis that in other times might have brought the country together. 
often wondered how the chattering class would have approached COVID if Hillary had won in 2016. If Clinton had been president, would Democrats have been as supportive of stay-at-home orders that damaged the economy and school closures that eroded the education and mental health of children? If Hillary had won in 2016, would Democrats have found they had a stake in pushing people back to work and children back to school? Would they have lauded healthy people who stayed home for as long as a year as virtuous Americans and those who went out in the world as selfish? Red state governors like Florida's Ron DeSantis and South Dakota's Kristi Noem encouraged businesses to open. Democrats like California Governor Gavin Newsom embraced the stay-at-home mentality, orders that banned even outdoor dining and restaurants, and worst of all, public school closures. I never understood how residents of once adventurous California, where I had lived for more than 30 years, acquiesced to some of Newsom's more obscene edicts that had little basis in science, like when he closed California beaches. Did I mention 2020 was an election year? You couldn't find two more different candidates when it came to living with COVID than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. The difference between the candidates was made clear to me when I pulled President-elect Joe Biden's transition. I signed on for the transition pool so I could get to know the Biden people before the new president took office. But COVID had infected some members of the campaign team, which practiced social distancing with such dedication that I didn't meet a press aide on the bus. There was barely any personal interaction. It was like covering someone remotely, but from a bus in Delaware. During the campaign, Biden engaged in some travel, but he usually stayed close to his Delaware home, and he delivered his Democratic National Convention acceptance speech from Wilmington's Chase Center. The Republican National Committee rented space in D.C. for a pared-down convention. But Trump insisted on going big. He gave his acceptance speech the last evening of the convention on the White House South Lawn. It wasn't a violation of the Hatch Act for Trump to campaign on the South Lawn. The president and vice president are exempt, although it was a problem for his unelected staff. As an investigation later found, 13 aides were found guilty of violating the law, which is supposed to bar federal employees from engaging in political advocacy while performing official duties. Still, many question the optics of Trump using the People's House for baldly partisan purposes. With huge Trump-Pence campaign signs on both ends of a flag-draped stage, ending with a massive fireworks display over the Washington Monument that actually spelled out Trump 2020. Twice. We're dealing in politics. We're dealing with a thing called November 3rd of this year. Do you know what November 3rd represents, right? You know better than anybody in the room. November 3rd of this year, it's called the presidential election. No matter what I do, no matter where we go, no matter how well we do, no matter what, if I came up with a tablet, you take it and and this plague is gone. They'll say Trump did a terrible job, terrible, terrible, because that's their soundbite. That's the political soundbite. Trump did not hold back. He bragged. The fact is we're here and they're not.
Thanks for listening. I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent and fellow at the Discovery Institute. Next episode, the interview. President Donald Trump hits the campaign trail, warns of a rigged election, and tries to match his surprise 2016 victory. Listen on on my exclusive interview with the 45th president. It took me three and a half years to land it and lasted all of four and a half minutes. There's a story there. This podcast was produced by Beowulf Rockland and Rosabelle Hine of Two Squared Media Productions with editing assistance from Lauren Little. I want to thank the Las Vegas Review-Journal and C-SPAN for material cited in this podcast.